Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. One of the byproducts of the Black Lives Matter movement and the current protests against policing in the United States is an examination of black history and culture in America and its relationship to white privilege. Judy Juanita is a poet, novelist, and playwright. In her younger days as Judy Hart, while at San Francisco State, she served as editor-in-chief of the Black Panther newspaper and lived in one of the Black Panther safe houses in 1967. Along the way, she came to know such figures as Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. In 2013, her first novel, Virgin Soul, was published. It's a fictionalized memoir of her life in the Black student movement and with the Panthers. This interview, recorded in the spring of 2013, goes into detail about her life during the Panther days, about the relationship of the book to actual history, and about Judy Juanita's life after the Panthers. Virgin Soul is a novel. However, it's based on your own life. Why did you decide to make this a novel rather than a memoir about your life in the Black Panthers? I started writing this novel as a recollection after I had been in the party for a number of years and I had taught at San Francisco State, youngest faculty member of the first Black Studies program. I was by then married, had a child, and I realized that I had been in such an historic moment and that I had participated in it. What I did was I got a notebook and I wrote down the names, the nicknames, the, all the sayings, everything that I could remember. Didn't quite know exactly where I was going, had a feeling for wanting to write a novel, tried to write a few stories, and it all stayed in my notebooks for a number of years. I just really didn't have the writing skills to write a novel. But I never really thought of doing a memoir. I just didn't think I was that important. What I really did realize after a while, especially after all of the literature started coming out about the Black Panther Party, and that was years and decades, I began to realize very few people are writing about the foot soldier. And very few people are writing about the female foot soldier. So there's a place for me, and there's a place for this story and this young woman. At that point, you were a foot soldier. You were in the party in a way that no one else has written about, and yet you still decided to make it a novel. I think the best answer for that is that I like to play with the facts. I love the facts of what happened. But I thought there were some deeper truths that I was getting at. For one thing, from the very beginning, I made my main character, Janice, dark-skinned. I'm not dark-skinned. And the reason I did that was because I wanted to explore what it felt like 
to be on one end of the spectrum before the movement started. In other words, dark skin was was a negative, and then to be on the other end of the spectrum, black is beautiful, after the movement started. So we have this story, the real Judy Juanita. And as you said before we went on the air, Juanita is a name you use now. It was not the last name you were using at the time. I I was Judy Hart. Well, the real Judy, uh, and we can compare and contrast a little bit, but the real Judy, did you become involved in the Panthers the same way that Janice did? In other words, you know, meeting some guys and suddenly fall into it? Almost exactly the same way. I was a student at Oakland City College. We called it City then. And I ran into the radicals. I used to go out and watch them on the lawn. I didn't know what they were talking about. I thought they were kind of nutty, but I knew they were extremely bright. I didn't become a radical during my years at Oakland City College. I was concentrating on transferring. But I was always an Oakland and Berkeley kid, which means there were protests, there were marches around. We caught the bus and went over to the Sheraton Hotel in San Francisco and watched the sit-ins. It was just a scene. So it wasn't as though I was uh, doing something that was very unusual. So it wasn't until I transferred to San Francisco State that I got involved with the Black Student Union, and then I got involved with the Panthers after Huey and Bobby came to the school recruiting. At that point, it was the cusp of three different movements. There was the hippie movement and the counterculture. There was the awakening of black power. And we were also in the early stages of what they call second wave feminism. Before you went over to SF State, how conscious were you of these three separate entities? I assume, of course, everybody was dancing to Jimi Hendrix. So on some level you were. How conscious were you and how conscious was your family of that? My family's only objective for me was for me to get an education. Both of my parents were educated and were alumni of Langston University in Oklahoma. So that was their main objective. Get your education, get your education. Okay. I was there, I knew, to go to school. However, San Francisco was so exciting and so much fun that being a part of the scene was just, I think, a normal response for a young person of that time. We lived in the Fillmore, and at that time, we kind of called it the Fillmore hate because it kind of blended in together. At that time, I didn't know it was historic, but I lived at the Alamo Square neighborhood. We went out late at night. We went to a a nightclub called the Hate Levels. We participated in, in the action, so to speak. We hung out at Golden Gate Park, went to the music festivals, went to Fillmore West. We did those kinds of things. However, there was a beautiful scene going on at a place called the Black House. And that's where I think the real education started. The young man in the book named Allwood is strictly a character. There was no Allwood in my life. The sense I get is that all of the primary characters surrounding Janice are fictional or fictional interpretations. They're not the people that you necessarily knew. That's correct. 
as a novel, the novel ends, so she goes off, whereas you didn't. Janice, she was pretty much a virgin in all respects. In other words, she walks in a blank slate in the novel. Were you that blank slate or not? Oh, no. No, I I was very different from Janice, but I wanted to take that that innocence and that vulnerability and use it in my character. I was definitely virginal, as many young college girls are, but I also have, in my family, we call it Scotty Hart, and that's my dad's name. I had a lot of Scotty Hart in me, and that means somebody who's kind of street savvy and is not going to be run over by anybody, and that's that's who Judy is. That's not quite who Janice is. She's much more vulnerable. She's much more introspective. I think she's beautiful from the inside out. I don't actually see myself that way or that person who was who I was then. I think I was much more superficial. And this young woman is not superficial at all. She's really feeling every moment of what she's going through. I wasn't. I was having a ball. I was out there. Let's talk for a second about you. How radicalized were you and... There is discussion in Virgin Soul about that transition from Negro to black in terms of how people viewed African-Americans. Where on that spectrum were you and how were you feeling? And, you know, I don't want to use the word recruitment, but how did you how did you get to the party? I was pretty much 100 percent on the spectrum. I was one of the first in my crowd and definitely the first in my family to wear my hair natural. My parents didn't like that at all. Like the family in the book, I had been lustrous silk for years, which is a kind of perm that's very, that was very popular in the black community. So that was a huge break with the family. Nobody recruited me to do that. I looked around and I saw what I felt were standards of beauty that were being ignored by the major culture. And I just wanted to participate in it. I thought it was a beautiful kind of a hairstyle. And I adapted it to the hair that I had at that point. It kind of was in between and my family made fun of it, you know, because the perm wasn't completely gone and the the natural didn't completely take. So it, it was kind of an awkward kind of thing at first, but then I just kept getting it cut off. And then I had a natural. It was huge then. It was a demarcation line at that point. I recently read that Angela Davis had said she didn't want to be remembered for a hairdo. But the hairdo had lots of implication beyond just appearance. It was an act of rebellion. It prevented you from getting a certain kind of job. You couldn't hang with a certain kind of social circle. And you were more than welcome in other social circles. So... It was a pretty important first step, but then there were other steps. Let's talk about some of those other steps, Judy Juanita. Gradually, through characters who are fictional, Janice in your novel, Virgin Soul, winds up hanging out and being with the Panthers. For you, the situation was different. You were more aware. You were living in the city. You were partying, and you were going over to the black 
House. What was the Black House and how did being there involve you more with the people who were in your book who were real, including Huey Newton, Eldridge Cleaver, Bobby Seale, Stokely Carmichael? Well, Eldridge and Marvin X were the residents of the house. They got together and pulled it off at the beginning. They opened it up and all kinds of black community groups and people were welcomed there and came there for nearly nightly sessions of all kinds of activities from cultural programs. The Organization of African Unity, OAU, was based there for a while. Poetry readings and also a lot of political education classes were held there. PE classes, as we call them. So I went to almost everything that was there. I lived about four blocks from it. We just went over there at night to see what was going on. It wasn't like they had a schedule printed out. We just hung out there, went over there. Something was always going on there for a while. And during that period, were you learning more about the political nature of the Panthers and what they intended to do and what they were saying about white America? Yes and no. I first encountered some of the political understanding back at the city college. Huey and Bobby organized the first black studies course there. And Rodney Carlyle is in the book, and he's an actual person. And he's now a professor emeritus from Harvard or someplace. But he was there. He was a young scholar, just a young PhD, fresh out of you know his, his program. And he had the first black studies course at the City College. So it was there that I first began to read about the history of oppression and began to understand it very differently from the other history classes and Western civilization classes that I had taken. So that was pretty much my first encounter with Huey and Bobby in terms of politicizing because they'd come in the classroom just like they do in the book and they'd stand there to make sure that this teacher was teaching the curriculum that they had set up. So that was very interesting. So then at the Black House, I can't remember the exact demarcation, but I began to be aware that there was a big disagreement between what are called cultural nationalists and and the party. There was huge disagreement. Uh, can you go into that a little bit more? What were these two groups and what eventually happened? One group was uh, the Black Panther Party of Northern California, I believe. And then the other one was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which became or which became the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. The first group, the Cultural Nationalist Group, which became the Cultural Nationalist Group, had taken the name from the Mississippi Democratic Party in Lowndes County, Mississippi. And they had worked together for a while. And this this history is much more complex than anything that I can do here and people can look it up. But I do deal with it in the chapter on Betty Shabazz because that was the demarcation point, and I say that in the novel. She came for a celebration around Malcolm X's birthday, and when she came, the Panthers, who were cultural nationalists, showed up at the airport with unloaded guns, and the Panthers showed up 
with loaded guns. And once that was clear, after they escorted her from the airport, there was a big fallout at Ramparts magazine at the at the headquarters. And each group went their own way after that. The Black Panther Party that we know of is the group with the guns. Right, right. And they call the other group Paper Panthers. And for you, going to the Black House at that point and watching this, did you take sides? Did you kind of hope they'd just work it out? What were your thoughts? Remember? Okay, so that scene, I was not there. That's one of the few scenes in there that I was not there. But I did make a conscious decision not to follow the cultural nationalists. First of all, I was, I hate to say it kind of boils down to appearance, but I wasn't into into wearing the, the African wraps and cooking the meals and, you know, following five steps behind. That wasn't me at all. So the cultural nationalists were, were kind of... They were they, a little they're... chauvinistic. Yes. <laughs> they were chauvinistic. I wasn't going that way. I had just left home, a very strict home environment. I did not leave home and move to San Francisco to go back in a set of chains. No, 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 no. I was out to have a good time and to explore the world. That was the other part of, of the Betty Shabazz scene because... The women who have been part of this all along are suddenly told, get lost. Yes. You oh, know. yeah. Yeah, you had a place. And if you see, I you notice that it's the cultural nationalists who I'm ascribing that kind of behavior, behavior to. The reason I, I bring all this up is because, as I said, this is also at the birth of the women's movement, the yes. modern women's yes. movement as well. A lot of these guys at least from Virgin Soul, Judy Juanita, they treated the women like second-class citizens. And it sounds as if a great deal of the time you had to fight for your place. Yes, they did, but it was under a banner of protection. It was, we're, we're protecting our queens, and some women went for that. And I'm not saying it was a, it was a totally bad thing. I'm not. I thought for a long time, I thought it was very respectful that they did certain things, open doors, and were committed to earning the living and um, letting the, the women be at home, which is a reversal for black women who always had to get out and work. So there were certain aspects of it that I think many of us liked, the idea of the black man standing up strong and proud. However, uh, many of us didn't like the restrictions. The restrictions. And you have to remember the pill had just come out. I say that several times, not in the book. Well, I think it's, I say it in the book at one, one point. But we were free. Women had sexual freedom for once. They didn't have to have babies unplanned. But there was also something else. The sexual element, which does play a role in virgin soul, uh, and you make it pretty unappealing when some guy just says to Janice, and he's pretty disgusting, you know, you're here, we're going to do it. And Janice goes, no. But there is this sense that the women there were also there to be courtesans in a way to the men. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> that was a part of it. But remember, we were, most of us in our early 20s, and we did have that sexual freedom because we had contraception. 
So it wasn't like we were being tied down and forced. It was kind of like a sexual exploration on on the parts of many people. And many people actually hooked up, meaning made long-term relationships. And, and I did too, out of that milieu. How about the respect generally in terms of intellectual respect did the men pay the women? Uh, did you have to fight for that at all? I know you did become a major part of the newspaper, so they did respect you, I would guess. That's a difficult question to answer. I think that that there was a great deal of respect for women if they fought for it. I think you had to be feisty. I think if you look at the top women, I've always thought of Elaine Brown, of Angela Davis, of of Kathleen Cleaver as being extraordinarily feisty and very intelligent women. Uh, I think if you were someone else, you had to fight. Erica Huggins also is very, very intelligent and very strong. She doesn't come across with that feistiness that the others do, but she's still, I think, a, undoubtedly a strong, strong person. So I think it's it was a challenge always. And I certainly had a big mouth then and got into a lot of back and forth with people. And so did my roommates, all of whom joined the party at, at around the same time. And we all had very big mouths and could be considered difficult. But we held our own. There is a wonderful scene where Janice gets into a bit of a battle with Kathleen Cleaver. Did that particularly yeah. happen? Yes, that happened. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, things that happen that you were there, and this is kind of your recollection, the death of Bobby Hutton, where Janice is not there, but she hears different points of view and she tries to put it together and she only remembers him as this nice kid. That pretty much what the way it was? Yes, yes. How close did you hew to the facts when dealing with real people like Huey Newton or Eldridge Cleaver or Leroy Jones? Very close. I used uh, the archives. There are several sources that I used. One is the Huey P. Newton archives at Stanford University. Uh, there were the archives at Merritt College. There were the archives at San Francisco State University. And then the body of literature that's out. And I definitely had to be very careful, and the lawyers vetted the manuscript. I had to be very careful with that. So I'll give you an example of how one piece of information led to a fictional scene. When I was going through the archives at, at Stanford, I found Huey's graduation certificate from Merritt College. And I was stunned because it was the same night that I had graduated from Merritt College. And I realized, oh my gosh, we got our, our degrees on the same night. So the scene that's in the book about that night is totally fictional. However, I used much of Huey's transcripts and court records to compose the scene. In Virgin Soul, Janice and her friends wind up on Potrero Hill. For the tutorial center. Was there one there? Yes, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the Potomac Street flat is also real and was a safe house. Yes, yes. It was a huge nine-room flat. It's a beautiful flat. It cost us $197 a month, which we thought was a huge amount at that time. 
And it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. And we had plenty of room. So it turned out that situation developed, and we opened up the house to members who were in flight. It didn't happen so smoothly with me at first. It happened kind of like in the book. You know, they just ended up there. And I said, you know, how the hell did this happen? Who's, who? We didn't have a house meeting for this. You know, my, my bourgeois tendencies came out. But, you know, I fell in with the group. And There's one sequence where um, a non-political friend of Janice says, are you aware there are FBI surveillance people across the street? And Janice kind of goes, well, sure, of course. Yes. And you knew that. Yes, yes. They were very prominent and we saw them all the time. We'd wave at them. I'd like to talk a little bit about how all of this relates to what we're dealing with today. But one more question, I want to get back to it, because uh, you mentioned it at the beginning of the interview, and it does play a prominent role in the early sections of Virgin Soul, how physical appearance, the difference between dark and high yellow changed people in terms of their politics. Can you talk a little about that? I think I use in the book Cicely Tyson would be dark-skinned and Lena Horne would be high yellow. Okay, so that was very much part of the ethos of the time that black is beautiful was a repudiation of skin prejudice. It was a repudiation of the white standard that black wasn't beautiful or that blacks were ugly or that being African was was a negative. So for a time then, and I try to show that in the book, then a woman who was dark skinned was considered a queen, was considered beautiful, was considered an object of desire as opposed to an object of revulsion. I felt very special and very pretty and very singled out for the first time. My mother in particular had kind of raised me, you know, don't wear red lipstick, you know, you're, you know, you're a certain color, this kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden, I come into a new world where being brown skinned and being and having full lips was looked at as beautiful. That was very different from the way that I heard it when I was growing up and the way that I perceived it when I was growing up. So it was political. I think that only, I, I mean, I, I can't say only black people could truly understand that. I mean, that's kind of, you know, I don't want to go there. But I think that it's it gave such an inner sense of worth in a society that had been hostile to black worth. It just was immeasurable how it made people feel for a time. And because of that feeling, people were able to then explore other things like the history. And then people were able to confront oppression. You know, whereas blacks really kind of had been living in a kind of denial, you know, in a vacuum of denial. You know, everything's all right. Okay, we'll just get through this, that kind of thing. And especially when you have the Christian overlay. Toward the end of the novel, when Janice decides, okay, enough, I'm going to move on, she cleans out the apartment, and what they find is an armory of guns everywhere. What role did guns play in this, and was that fiction, or were those guns there? That was not fiction. Guns played a, a very 
um, solid, important part. Of course, it was called the Black Panther Party for self-defense, and we did learn how to use guns. But the point was not to run out and kill people. Uh, the point was that there was an occupying army in the black community that was um, judge, jury, and executioner, and that still happens today. And black people had to take a stand at some point and say, enough. You cannot just come in and slaughter us like this. And if you do, we're going to stand up and defend ourselves. That, to me, that's what I pulled out of all of it over and over again. And, and I think that basically that's, that's a point of liberation for all people, all oppressed people. Whatever they use, now we're at a point where people have far different kinds of weapons. But it's still, you can't just keep coming in and treating us like we're animals and slaughter us. So in a, in a sense, Judy Juanita, what you're saying is that the existence of those guns set the authorities notice, mm -hmm. sent everyone mm -hmm. notice yes. that things are going to change and we now have some power in our own hands. Yes. So that the guns were literal. Yes, they were guns. They, they were loaded. You know, they were cleaned. They were maintained. They were purchased. Often they were registered. Sometimes not. And the guns were symbolic. Moving ahead to the present time, Fred Hampton Jr. still says that all black prisoners are political prisoners in the United States. So some things have changed and some things have not. Yeah, the prison industrial complex is e even greater and the number of people in it are far more disproportionately black and brown people. We need prison reform. Just like we, we attempted health reform, we need um, total reform of our prison system. In those days, were they talking about issues such as prison reform, or was it just at that point the basic thing, give us our respect? I can't remember. We Mark visited prisons. I remember visiting Quentin. Mm -hmm. We visited prisons frequently, but I don't remember exactly. From the perspective of Janice and the people in Virgin Soul, mm -hmm. when they're looking at white society, they are looking at themselves as apart from white society, apart from society as a whole. And you had to be in order to survive. Do you think that's changed? Judging by the response to the Trayvon Martin case and the Oscar Grant case, no, I don't think it's changed. I think that we're still in a very deep quandary about um, the excessive use of police force. And that's, that hasn't been resolved. It's, it's gotten worse. And our video taping of these injustices highlights that. And for you, looking back, as you were writing the book and doing the research, obviously any book is written is, is even about the past, is also about the present. What conclusions did you come to? What did you learn in your research and going through your memories that kind of still applies today? The very thing we're talking about, the, the excessive use of police authority is still a, a travesty and that blacks still come out on the wrong end of the stick. It's kind of unfortunate that 
after 9-11, then there, ha- there has been some sentiment among some blacks, perhaps, that, oh, now it's on Muslims or now it's on, you know, people from the Middle East. Ugh, we get a little bit of a breather. But it's still there. It's still naked use of force against it's bullying. It's official bullying by, you know, the powers that be against people who are weaker. You know, I understand some of the sentiment about selling the guns back, you know, for $200 or $100. That happened after Trayvon was killed. But something in my gut didn't like it. You know, there's there's a closeness that the Panther movement had with the far right uh, movement. And people have pointed that out, you know, but but I and I'll look at Fox News from time to time because I want to know what they're talking about, what they're saying. But this idea of being defenseless doesn't hit me the right way. You know, even though I don't own guns now and don't haven't for, you know, many, many years, many, many decades. But there's something about being vulnerable. I this is what I would like. This is what I would like. I would like a society where the police don't have guns and the people don't have guns. You know, if if you want to hunt, then there's some hunting preserve that you can go to and you pick up the gun when you go there, that kind of a thing. What about policemen being peace officers? You know, I, I would love to get back to the policemen being there to, to help get chase the cat out of the tree or something like that, you know. One thing that's very sad is that here we are all of these years later and people are still complaining about the OPD And how many years has it been since the Panthers were there saying the OPD is racist? And we're still dealing with these issues. And that's just frustrating. It's frustrating for me as a white guy. It must be appalling for you. But societal change takes takes a long, long time. You know, even if the law goes in effect, like Brown versus Board of Education, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, ruled. Well, you have a black president and still it goes on. Yeah, still it goes on. So it it takes a long time to change. Actually, we're still trying to bring about the goals of the Constitution. This is we're still in a society that's 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 an experiment. Okay, (laughs) we're still an experiment. The Civil War rectified some of the problem with the three fifths of the man being considered, you know, a slave. We're still reeling in the South even from the effects of the Civil War. And this is like 160 years beyond that. So we've got a ways to go as a society. It's also true that it ties into economics and you can't remove economics from the issues as well. In those days, were you talking economics? Do you remember? Were you talking about uh, Marxism? People did talk. That wasn't my focus. But yes, I always thought those were the heavy dudes. And and actually, a lot of the the guys who were kind of like an Allwood in the book were talking that. But because they weren't willing to fight the fight that had to be fought at the time, 
then their words weren't as effective. You mentioned KPFA twice in the book. Did, did you listen to it? Yes, yes. And I knew Elsa Knight Thompson. She was in one of the scenes. Not by name, I don't believe. No, I no. think I had to take her name out. She and Alex were in the scene because Alex was the party attorney. That night that we're being chased when we're running with Bobby Seal, that was Elsa and Alex who were with us that night. These folks who are all now legendary, I mean, the whole group is legendary. Who did you really like as a person? Oh, we all liked Bobby Seal. Bobby Seal, hands down. Just the most down-to-earth, uh, wonderful, nice, even kind person. And uh, it's not in the book because it happens after the book. What were your recollections about the whole Chicago 8 business? So Bobby Seale's kind of known for really drinking the bitter dog. So we all were kind of wondering how Bobby was going to do without his liquor. So really, Bobby came through so beautifully and so wonderfully. It was really a shining moment of his. So that's what surprised us and heartened us. For the rest of us, just watching this seem like a police state in action what happened in Chicago, but it sounds for you as if, yeah, this is more of the man doing his thing. Oh, absolutely. This was no surprise to us. We just knew that when, quote, the white kids got involved, that that meant that would mean more media attention, more focus, uh, and actually more solutions would come about. It's analogous to right now, the housing crisis, the uh, economic downturn, when it affects white middle-class people, then all of a sudden, attention gets paid. You know, attention must be paid. It happens. To some degree, that hasn't changed then, that it has to be the white middle-class kids who get involved, that the fact that more African-Americans in this country are out of work and are oppressed because of the economic situation, it's only if white people get oppressed that anything changes that's just wrong. I think it's wrong too, but but the oppression is very deep in the black community and it's almost a norm. So when something is a norm, you know, when you've been in the outhouse for a long time, you get used to the smell. But when you haven't been in that outhouse, then the smell is abhorrent, you know, and you're not going to take it. So that's part of the dynamics of of having white skin privilege in this country is that you, I believe, don't know how tough life is until life comes up and bites you in the butt. But it's almost like like black people, we, well, you know, hey, that butt gets bitten all the time. Judy Juanita, if you were to meet Janice on the street today and you were to ask her, what do you think of America today? What do you think she would say? She's not you. Right, right. Yeah, no, she's not me. I think Janice would have gone on and and been a great upstanding citizen and she'd be happy. She wouldn't be living in the city though. She'd she'd be happy someplace outside of the city. There's a very strange <laughs> story about Janice being offered a medical school scholarship at Stanford. Is that fiction? No, that's not fiction. Did that happen to you? Yes. You were offered a medical school scholarship and you said, wait a second, I don't know anything about this? That's right. That's how wide open the door was 
when affirmative action started. I knew right away. Well, I didn't know right away. I, I dreamt about it for a little bit and thought, oh, this would be interesting, Dr. Judy. You know, <laughs> but, but I knew it was ridiculous. And also I knew that I knew, I knew so many, um, at least three or four um, potential medical school uh, applicants. And so I passed it on to them. And one of them got in. I think several of them did. Your own consciousness, feminist consciousness, did that fully take root during that period? Or do you think it, it really took root afterward? I think if you asked my ex-husband, he'd say that I was a feminist from the word, from the from Jump Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've maintained and many black women maintain that we we have had a kind of a de facto feminism. It was there. We had to go out and work. We had to fend for ourselves. We often didn't have mates or didn't have them for a, a permanent long time um, situation. So we kind of learned how to how to bond with each other, how to help each other out, and how to get along in life, whether or not you had a man. Judy Juanita, getting back to elements of the book, you mentioned in Version Soul that it was a time when suddenly people could screw around and not have kids and sex was rampant. But then we also had... Um, sex was friendly. Friendly. <laughs> sex was friendly. But there was also um, a disease which popped up from time to time. And this is in the pre-AIDS and HIV days. People don't talk today too much about HIV in the black community, but it's pretty rampant there now. Sure. That isn't the highest rate among black women uh, users, drug users. Uh, it's something that, that doesn't get discussed at all. No, no, no. You know, at one point I worked for the Social Security Administration and um, just this, uh, you know, a job working there. And we talked about it there and about the behavior of people coming into the office. And it, that was a problem there, too, with with users. I noticed that even though uh, there's a lot of laughter about one of the, the women possibly being lesbian, only she's not, was there any gay activity going on at all inside the Panther Party among women, among men, anything? You know, it's very interesting. I don't recall it. Uh, somebody told me, yes, there was. And, you know, how could you not think there wasn't when so many men had been to prison where it's you know, where it's utilized. So, yes, I remember a lot of jokes or a lot of innuendo about uh, the guys in prison, but I just didn't see it right in my face. However, since then, I've talked with people who said, oh, you just didn't know or you just weren't, you know, it wasn't in your in your right directly in front of your face. So, well, Judy Juanita, now you've completed this novel. How do you feel about novel writing now that you're done? I feel great. Uh, I actually have finished a second one and um, have an outline for a third one. So. And the second one, is it? Is it it's uh, completely different. Completely yeah. fictional? Yes. yes. It, uh, <laughs> no, but it's completely different. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about literature, um, Janice, like you, was a big reader. In, and we, we read the books. We, we hear that. That pretty much was you, right? That oh, part yes. of it. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a bookworm. I love love to read. You teach uh, English. English now. 
when you're talking about literature, what do you see the role of literature in terms of social change, or do you think it just stands by itself? Oh, no. I, I think it's very, very uh, key to giving people a common set of values or a common set of realizations. So I think that this movement in my community, in the black community, for um, the kind of novels that came out since 92, since, since Waiting to Exhale, I think it's been very, very important, even though I'm not per se a chick lit writer or a black lit writer in terms of Omar Tyree or Terry McMillan or um, Sister Soldier. Uh, I think these these works are very important and it's very, very important that people are reading them because one thing I found out is that reading is it. I tell my students all the time, I don't care what you're reading, read. Because you're going to find something in a book that you can't find in a conversation with people. You can't find um, just walking down the street. There's going to be reading is like a code, you know, it's it's coded language. And so coded language helps you develop mental skills all the time. So I think literature is very important, however it gets in people's hands. What about even comic books? Oh, I love comic books. I love comic books. I've used graphic novels, and uh, I used Mouse by um, Art Spiegelman. Oh, I've used that a lot in class. Love comic books. I've used an illustrated history of African-American, of of the African-American. I can't remember the exact title of it, but it was very effective. Graphic novels, very, very effective. And movies. Movies are a form of literature, and movies are very, very important. I've used them in classrooms, too, yeah, like m- many teachers. And in, in those days, uh, was there an awareness, even after the, uh, the, the cultural folks left, was there, there an awareness of the importance of art among people like Huey Newton or Eldridge Cleaver? Sure, sure. And that's why they gave um, primary attention to the works of Emory Douglas, Um, the artist. Definitely people understood that poetry, song, music, and art were all important. Uh, And they they combined them into one whole. I think that the poster art and the 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 advertising, you know, particularly Huey and the Peacock Chair, um, served as a graphic uh, that helped develop the people's consciousness. And how how did they deal with someone who was both gay and black, like James Baldwin? Baldwin's name comes up, and then someone says Martin Luther Queen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't remember there being um, um, anti-gay sentiments then. And I do remember that James Baldwin was looked at uh, as as a crusader, and as someone who fought, he was always um, giving his time and his money to civil rights causes. And Bayard Rustin was a very important part of the movement. See, people, I think, kind of forget that the, or don't understand that the movement included both the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the culture nationalists. It, it, was, it was all of a piece. 
It just was wide. So within that, then there were, I'm sure, there was tolerance for people like uh, James Baldwin, not, not people like James Baldwin, but for James Baldwin and for Bayard Rustin within the movement, you know, even though there, even though Bayard Rustin had his problems with SCLC. At the time, and it's, it is mentioned again in, in Virgin Soul, you had the more traditional civil rights movement, but it was also necessary to have the more militant Panthers. Do you think that militant, a militant group, militant people are still absolutely necessary for the civil rights movement? Yes, <laughs> I do. I, I think that, that you always need people who are going to push it, push the envelope. Yes, yes. Like, like ACT UP. You know, I just think that, yes, we need those kinds of people. I don't want anyone to get hurt. I don't want anyone to die. But even in the Occupy movement, we saw that um, people really paid attention when people challenged. It, you know, as long as you're just sitting in a park playing a flute, it, nobody's really going to do too much. But when you say, no, we're going to close the port, this port cannot keep operating. That's militant. That's pushing the envelope. That's necessary to let, especially in our culture and our society where we have such rampant coercion and force used by the military, the military industrial complex, um, industrial power. You know, somebody has to stand up and say, no, you just you can't do this anymore. I see black people as an early warning system. You know, it happens to us first, and then it's going to happen to a lot of other people. And the more people see, no, you can't let Monsanto, I think it is, you can't let them just take your food and do whatever they want with it and then tell you about it 15 years later. That's the same thing that the cigarette company did with putting tar or the, you know, the, the carcinogenic into the cigarettes in in the mid-40s. You know, cigarettes weren't always cancer-causing, you know, but then once they changed it without telling us, without letting us know, then here we are suffering so badly. So, yes, sometimes militant force is needed. Sometimes militant force is needed. That's going to be the I'm, end of the interview. I'm still a radical. <laughs> Since 2013, Judy Juanita has continued to write and teach her collection of essays, De Facto Feminism, Essays Straight Out of Oakland, was published in 2016, and she recently had a story published in the collection, Oakland Noir. Judy Juanita just completed a second novel. I'm Richard Walensky. See you next Sunday for another edition of the Radio Walensky Podcast. Mm -hmm.